Our second reading you'll see is on page 1149, 1 Corinthians 6. So, whereas normally we go through a passage of the Bible, today this is more of a topical talk, uh, but we'll certainly touch on verses in this. So, page 1149, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. For my uh, birthday this year, one present I got was uh, this thing, this wooden handle with a razor blade on the end. And my first thought was, What on earth? Uh, It turns out it's a lame, is that the word? So it's a sort of curved cutting tool for making pretty patterns on bread dough, if you're making your own bread at home. It's what it's designed to do. But if you didn't know that, if you didn't know it was designed to do that, and you just started waving it around, you're going to do a lot of damage. You're going to do a lot of damage to yourself. You might do a lot of damage to other people. So these, these blades here are razor sharp. Okay, So handle with care. Follow the manufacturer's instructions. Sex is like this bread-making tool. What on earth is it for? People have lots of different opinions. uh, But here are two big views in our society. There's a secular view which says that sex is whatever you want it to be. You decide, do what you want, it's up to you. Do what feels right for you. Be free Be yourself, the authentic you. Just live out whatever sexual desires you have. By contrast, the Christian view says that sex is designed by God for a purpose. And if we follow the maker's instructions, it is a beautiful gift which will bring great blessing and human flourishing. But if we ignore the maker's instructions, it will do a lot of damage to ourselves and to other people. Now, why are we having a talk on this? 
such a, a personal, such a sensitive topic? Well, because it's relevant to all of us, all of us here are sexual beings, because it's a big issue which has huge implications for our lives, because the, the sexual revolution over the past 60 years has brought about seismic changes in views about sex, and there is a lot of confusion, even in churches. And because the secular agenda about sex is being promoted very forcefully, very aggressively in our culture, and so if we don't as churches teach on it, the culture will do that for us. If you're someone who at the moment isn't a Christian, I hope this talk will help you understand something of the biblical vision for sex and see the goodness of it. And if you are a Christian, a biblical view of sex is increasingly seen, isn't it, as being weird, uh, not just weird, but oppressive and discriminatory and toxic. And the danger is that as Christians we become defensive, we become embarrassed, but there is nothing to be embarrassed about. The biblical view of sex is a better story. It is a better vision for human flourishing. It goes with the grain of reality as God has made it, and it is good, and we need to have confidence in that. So you'll see on the outline inside your sheets, we're going to look at three things. And we'll look at lots of different verses, not just one passage. And the first thing is that sex is divine. Sex is divine in two ways. Firstly, it is divine in that it comes from God. It's his invention. It's his idea. He came up with it. He designed it. God made us sexual beings. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. Genesis 1.28, so God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them. And the first recorded words of God to the people he made were, go and have sex. That was the gist of it. His actual words were, be fruitful and multiply. Same thing. Genesis 1.28. So given, given sex is God's idea, it's his invention, he knows what it's for. Because he knows how it's designed to work. He made it. And so if we want to flourish as human beings, if we not, don't want to harm ourselves, don't want to harm other people, we need to read and we need to follow the maker's instructions. Secondly, sex is divine in the sense that it is extremely good. So when we say, that chocolate cake was divine, we mean, it was amazing. And so sex is amazingly good. When Adam first met Eve, they were, it says, both naked and they were not ashamed. And Adam was so overjoyed, he broke out into poetry. And the Song of Songs, we had a sermon series on, is a book which is all about the goodness of erotic love. And so sex as God designed it is not dirty, it's not inappropriate, it's not ungodly, it's not shameful, it's a wonderful thing. But as someone has written, to hear many religious people talk, one would think that God created the torso, head, legs and arms but the devil slapped on the genitals. So sex is divine, made by God, amazingly good. But what is it for? What is its purpose? First, fruitfulness. 
Be fruitful and multiply, God said to the first couple. And they were. They produced Cain, Abel, Seth, and other sons and daughters, the fruit of the womb. And we here today are their ultimate descendants. So babies, children, are a good thing. It's a blessing. They're not the enemy getting in the way of our freedom. And this goodness of being fruitful is one reason why it can be so painful, it can be so painful for those who are unable to have children, and we need to be very loving and supportive to them. Second purpose of sex is pleasure. In the Song of Songs, the couple there delight in each other sexually. Song of Songs 2.16, my beloved is mine and I am his. Song of Solomon 7.6, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. So God created sex for enjoyment, for delight, to love the other by giving pleasure to them. Now, this biblical view of sex, that it's for procreation and for pleasure, that would have been very, very alien in the ancient Roman world. So in that ancient Roman culture, men saw sex with their wives as just for procreation, whereas for sexual pleasure, that's where they went off to their mistresses. Third purpose of sex is union. The two, we heard at the beginning of the service, the two will become one flesh. We had it in our reading, 1 Corinthians 6, 16. In sex, two become one. Physically, that is true, that two bodies become joined together. But this physical union expresses union at every level. Emotionally, psychologically, personally, spiritual. It's saying, look, we are a unit. We are a, a union. We are one. And the physical uniting in sex also helps to maintain and to deepen that union. So it doesn't just express it, it maintains it, it deepens it. And that's why the Bible tells couples to keep at it. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, do not deprive one another. The fourth purpose of sex is anticipation. Sex is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. We had it in our reading just now. 1 Corinthians 6.16 says, It is written, The two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. If you were here last week, we had three people who were baptized. Wonderful occasion. Their, their physical baptism was a picture of a spiritual reality. Their sins being washed away. Dying and rising to new life. That's what it symbolized. And so sex is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. It pictures our union with the Lord. That verse says that through faith we are joined to him. Now, but then ultimately and completely in the age to come. And so sex is a, a mirror, if you like, in which we see relationship with the Lord united with him. And the, the fruitfulness of sex tells us, it tells us that our relationship with the Lord is to be fruitful. So our relationship with the Lord should bear the fruit of godly character and blessing to others. 
the pleasure of sex tells us that our relationship with the Lord is to be joyful. That he delights in us and he's passionate about us. So our relationship with the Lord is not just the relationship of master-slave, king-subject, father-child, but it's lover-to-lover. But sex is not just a picture of that relationship. It is a foretaste and an anticipation. Do you ever fear that heaven is going to be boring? Do you ever fear that you know, life in the age to come is going to be a bit dull? What will it be like? It's as if God has said, how can I give people some idea of how good life is going to be in eternity? I'll tell you what, I'll give them the gift of sex. So the joy, the pleasure, the delight, the ecstasy, the intensity that they experience in the uniting of two people, it will give them a tiny foretaste of what is to come going to be that good. And so our sexual desires and our sexual longings, they actually point us forward to the age to come and to eternity. Someone put it this this way. They said, whether we are married or single in this life, sexual desire is our inbuilt homing instinct for the divine. A kind of navigation aid showing us the way home. Our desires, our most passionate longings will only be fulfilled when we take our place at the table of God's love. That is what our passionate longings are there for, to call us home. So that is telling us that sex is wonderful, but it is not the ultimate. The ultimate is union with the Lord, of which sex is a picture and a foretaste. Now what that means is, We do not have to experience sex to flourish as human beings and to be fulfilled. Jesus didn't. Whereas by contrast, secular culture idolizes sex and it it insists that everybody has got to experience this and without it, you can't flourish as a human being. And the Bible says no. It's the ultimate reality that matters. Not the picture, not the foretaste. And so you can flourish as a human being without being physically united to someone in sex. But you cannot flourish as a human being if you are not spiritually united with the Lord. So, sex is divine. Secondly, sex is for marriage. And only for marriage. Those are the maker's instructions. But why? Well, what is marriage? Genesis 2.24 Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. There are three elements there to marriage. First, leave. A man shall leave his father and mother. So marriage is about setting up a new social unit. Secondly, hold fast and hold fast to his wife. This word there translated hold fast is used in the Old Testament of Covenant commitment. Covenant commitment. So when God made a covenant with his people, he called them to hold fast, same word, to him. So it was something you declared publicly, formally, and so marriage is a formal, public covenant commitment in which you make promises to be faithful till death us do part. 
Third element, become one. The two shall become one flesh. It is only in this context of having left and having made a public, legally binding covenant commitment that the two are to become one flesh. United at every level, including physically in sex. And so, we are not to unite with someone physically unless we are also united with a person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, legally in marriage. Sex is God's way for two people to say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, exclusively to you, which is the nature of marriage. And then once you have given yourself in marriage, sex is a way of maintaining and deepening that union with your covenant partner. It's, it's how you renew the commitment. It's how you recall all that the other person means to you. And you give yourself afresh to them. So sex, as Tim Keller called it, sex is the, the covenant renewal service. And so if you are married... Keep renewing your commitment. It's important. So sex is a way of maintaining and renewing the covenant. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says, do not deprive each other. Now in the busyness of life, especially if you have demanding jobs and maybe young ones, you're tired, you're stressed, it's challenging. But it's so important for maintaining and deepening that union. Maybe think of it this way. A car engine needs oil. And without it, the friction between the moving parts, it makes the engine burn out and seize up. I know, I have seen it happen in our own car. And so a marriage needs sex. Sex is like the engine oil in the relationship that stops the engine from seizing up. And it is a good test of how a marriage relationship is going. So if there are problems in the relationship, sex is going to be very difficult, and so the problems need addressing. Tim Keller wrote, Time, children, illness, and age all bring changes that may require creative, disciplined responses to rebuild a sexual intimacy that was easier at an earlier time. If you don't confront and adapt to these changes, they will erode your sex life. Secondly, marriage is heterosexual. The maker's good design for marriage is a man and a woman united together. Genesis 1.27, male and female, he created them. Genesis 2.24, a man shall hold fast to his wife. And Jesus quoted this, he reaffirmed this in Matthew 19 verse 5. Such marriage between a man and a woman is the only God-designed place for sex. People say, well, why? Why not two men? Why not two women? Well, as we've seen already, one of God's purposes for sex is fruitfulness, uh, procreation, and for that you need a man and a woman. And the, the committed relationship of that man and woman, so two opposite-sex parents... It provides the secure, stable home that children need to flourish. But another reason, another reason is that this union of difference, 
a man and a woman, it points to the ultimate union of difference. God and man. Heaven and earth. Christ and the church. It's a union of difference. And that's our third point, that marriage models a greater reality. We saw that physical union in sex is a model of the spiritual union between the Lord and his people, so with marriage. That in marriage, God has given us a model of the ultimate marriage between him and his people. The Bible is a love story. It's a story of God's love. It begins in Genesis with a marriage between two people. And it ends in Revelation with the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. As Paul says in Ephesians 5.32 about marriage, he says, this mystery is profound and it refers to Christ and the church. And so the elements of marriage that we've seen already are not arbitrary, they're not random, to leave, to hold fast, to become one. They reflect the ultimate marriage. So the Son of God left his Father in heaven to come to earth, the ultimate leaving. And he held fast to his his bride in covenant commitment, laying down his life for her on the cross, the ultimate holding fast. And raised to life, he was united with his bride in spiritual union, the two becoming one, the ultimate union, our full experience of which awaits the ultimate wedding when Christ returns. So do we want to know what God's love is like? Do we find it hard to grasp God's love Look at an elderly couple celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. Still passionately in love, committed to each other, faithful, united. That's what God's love is like. That's why he's given us marriage, so that in this model we can see something of his love for us. His passionate, faithful, committed, sacrificial love for his people. And this ultimate marriage calls us to leave, to leave our old life of sin, to hold fast to the Lord in covenant commitment and passionate love, and to be spiritually united with him. Now, again, because the spiritual marriage is the ultimate, we don't have to get married to be fulfilled and to be flourished, to flourish as human beings. Jesus didn't. What matters is that we experience the ultimate marriage to the Lord. And those who don't get to experience marriage and who therefore abstain from sex as followers of Christ, they are proclaiming that they believe in this ultimate marriage. And that can be a costly road to walk. And so the church needs to be a place where they experience deep friendship and intimacy and community. Now, this mention of sex outside of marriage brings us to our last point, which is that sex is dangerous. What if I took my uh, bread-cutting tool here and I said, this thing is mine, I'm going to do with this what I want to do, and no one's going to tell me otherwise, okay? I'm not just going to use it in the kitchen, on bread dough, that's too restrictive. This would be great for shaving, you know, maybe for brushing my teeth. Uh, maybe combing my hair, and maybe we can have a bit of fun, and you know, I'll start chucking it around, you catch it. What's going to happen? Suddenly what created beautiful patterns on dough, when used as designed, 
would cause enormous damage. It would be carnage. A lot of people would get hurt. It's the same with sex. It is a very powerful thing. A beautiful gift, when enjoyed in its God-given context of marriage. But so many people think, well, that's a bit restrictive. I'm going to do what I want with it. And the secular thinkers and influencers encourage us to do that. They say to us, look, sexual restraint, that's going to be, that's harmful. It's not healthy. Be free. That's a lie of the devil. Just as the ancient serpent deceived the first couple into thinking that God was just out to spoil their fun. And so we take sex and we do with, do with it our own thing outside of marriage and we ignore the maker's instructions and the result is total carnage. We cause damage to ourselves, we cause damage to others and a lot of people get hurt. And it cheapens and it distorts God's beautiful gift of sex. And that is why the Bible urges us, commands us to flee from sexual immorality in all its various forms. I've just put down a few of them on the sheet. The, uh, the Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia, from which we get our word pornography. In ancient Greece and Rome, a porne was a prostitute or a sex slave. They were treated as things, not as persons, as objects, and they were often physically abused. As people are today in prostitution and in child abuse, in rape, in pornography, and all that sort of abuse and exploitation, it couldn't be further from God's beautiful design for sex. Apparently the average age that a boy first encounters pornography is now nine. And later, after years of exposure to it, it can destroy a person's ability to relate to their spouse. And so with good reason, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. And given the the well-documented addictive nature of pornography, if that is something you are struggling with, please do reach out to us, seek help. Sin thrives in the darkness. It thrives in being hidden away. It loses much of its power when it's brought into the light. Second, casual sex. The so-called hookup culture encourages casual sex. One night stands, sex without emotional attachment. And people claim, it's no big deal. It's just a bit of fun. But these meaningless encounters, they tear people apart with pain and with heartache. Why? Well, because sex is so powerful. It's like gluing together two bits of paper, which I did earlier up there in the office. And casual sex is basically, it's tearing them apart. It's what happens. That sex needs the permanence of the marriage relationship. And sex is intensely personal. In fact, one Bible term for sex is to know somebody. So Genesis 4.1 says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. It's deep personal knowledge of somebody. You can't just detach yourself from that. And so casual sex is basically, it's telling lies 
with your body. It's telling lies with your body. Because, as we've seen, sex is a way of saying, I belong completely to you. I'm united with you on every level. But in casual sex, you're not. You're lying. 1 Corinthians 6.16 says that if you have sex with a prostitute, you become one body with her. But you should only go all the way, as people say, physically with someone, if you're going to go all the way at every level with them. And that's why third, cohabitation is wrong too. So living together without being married. Physical oneness demands all the other kinds of oneness that sex expresses. And so do not give your body to someone unless you have given your whole life to them. In marriage, in public covenant commitment, to love and to cherish, forsaking all others till death as do part. Cohabitation does not have the stability or the permanence of marriage. It's basically leaving your options open. It's telling lies with your body. Now, for sure, marriages do end in divorce, but that accounts for 20% of breakups. The breakup of cohabiting families accounts for 80%. As someone has written, divorce isn't the biggest threat for kids today. It's the seemingly unstoppable rise of cohabitation. And so if you're cohabiting, you should go all the way and get married. And once married, fourth, we are to be faithful. Exodus 20.14, you shall not commit adultery. So adultery is when a married person has sex with someone other than their spouse. Proverbs 6.32 warns, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. And so we need to beware the affair. Beware the affair. When marriage is hard, we need to work at it. We need to sort things out, not look for the escape hatch. The Bible also warns us, fifth, against same-sex sex. It is obvious from biology that our bodies are not designed for this. And we've already explored some of the reasons why. That God designed sex and marriage as a union of difference, a man and a woman, to reflect the ultimate union. And for fruitfulness, for procreation, which requires a man and a woman. And so in 1 Corinthians 6.9, the list of wrong behaviours to flee from, it includes homosexual practice. Regardless of, not, regardless of whether or not the relationship is long, loving, and stable long-term. I'll put some other references in the footnotes. Now, with all these misuses of sex, people might say, but I have these sexual desires. I have these desires, so I need to live them out. I need to be the authentic me. It's just natural. But the Bible says that we, we naturally have now many sinful desires. So Jesus said in Mark 7, From within, out of the heart of man comes sexual immorality, adultery, sensuality. All these evil things come from within. So what is required is not self-expression, but self-restraint, self-control. Now, we know this, don't we? So we get this. You're walking down the street you know, after church today. Someone walks past you to whom you feel sexually attracted. What do you do? Do you go up to them and say, 
do you want to jump into bed with me? Well, of course you don't. You know, you exercise self-control. Animals, animals act on instinct, but as humans, we're to exercise self-restraint. Well, as we close, where does this leave us? There are two responses, and we need both of them. First, we all need grace and compassion. 1 Corinthians 6, having listed various types of sin, including sexual sin, it says in verse 11, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The gospel is good news for sexual sinners. That in Christ we are washed clean, we are made holy, we are declared in the right with God. We all need this. Everyone here today, we all need this because all of us are sexual sinners. Because sexual sin is not just about actions, but it's about thoughts as well. And so even if you say, well, you know, I've never sinned sexually with my body, you will have in your mind and in your heart. Jesus explained in Matthew 5.27 that even if you lust after someone, you're committing adultery with them in your heart. And so we all need grace from God and we all need compassion from one another. None of us, none of us is on the moral high ground here. Okay, it is a level playing field and all of us are on it. When in John chapter 8 verse 7, when that woman was caught in adultery, Jesus said, and they brought her to stone him, Jesus said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Everybody walked away. Of course they did. Jesus did not come to condemn us, but to save us and redeem us and heal us. And so the the church is a hospital for sinners, including all those who've been damaged by this bread-making tool being misused. So as a church, we are to be a place of refuge for the victims of the sexual revolution, who have been deeply hurt by its lies and its false promises, who are weighed down with guilt and with shame. And, And we also need to be a place of support To live God's way. Because secondly, we all need repentance and faith. The wonderful promise here of being washed and sanctified and justified is for all who turn from sin to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.11 Such were some of you. Past tense. That passage begins, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, do not be deceived. A lot is at stake here. To inherit the kingdom of God, to be saved eternally, we need, as verse 18 says, to flee from sexual immorality. So Jesus didn't condemn the woman caught in adultery, but what did he say to her? Go, and from now on sin no more. And so we need to be honest with one another about our struggles and we need to encourage and support one another to repent and to live God's way. To be transformed, not to be conformed to the world around us, but to be holy as God is holy, as we heard in our first reading. And that call to be holy, it is for our good. Because the biblical vision for sex is amazing, 
It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's not to spoil our fun. It is for our flourishing in this age and in the age to come.